You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome back to Understanding Sin and Evil. I would like to take a minute to explain the next few episodes. This week, we continue with our discussion of Satan-like characters in Second Temple texts with a discussion of Blial in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, Blial is a major figure in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so I'm going to discuss him for several episodes. I'm going to talk about him as he appears in the Community Rule, in the Damascus Document, in the War Scroll, and in Jubilees. I know that Jubilees exists outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the connection is important here, and in various other texts. If you absolutely cannot stand the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you think they're totally boring and completely irrelevant, I apologize. You'll probably want to skip the next few episodes. But to return to Blial, why is Blial so relevant to our discussion of concepts of sin in the Second Temple period? Because the way in which Blial is used in the different texts the way he's depicted in the different scrolls we'll discuss will shed further light on the development of the idea of a central satanic figure. It will also be pretty easy to see parallels between the way Blial is described as a character and especially the way Blial is used to define non-members and the idea of Satan as we see him in later works. Also, if you think that the Dead Sea Scrolls are just plain cool, or if you really want to hear about how a small, unusual group of Jews during the Second Temple period interpreted sin and evil in the world around them, then you should probably tune in. As we shall see, Blial becomes an important defining element of Qumran identity. So first of all, who the heck is Blial? Where does he come from? Well, as you've already heard, Blial is the central satanic figure in the text composed by the Dead Sea community. Those are the people who composed or collected the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found at Qumran. So just to be clear, like Mastema in Jubilees, Blial is not himself a character in the Hebrew Bible. But like Mastema, the word Blial is found in the Bible. Unlike Mastema, it's actually a fairly common word in the Bible. It's an adjective indicating evilness, or more specifically, a general lack of morality. In Deuteronomy and Devarim 15.9, one is told not to think a blial thought, or literally a blial thing, namely the thought of not lending to a poor person right before the Shemitah year. So that's because in the Shemitah year, all loans are automatically forgiven. So in some ways, it's both expected and not really moral to refuse to lend to a poor person before the Shemitah year because there's a good chance that he won't have to pay you back. So the Blial thought in this case is a thought of not being generous as one really needs to be given the Shemitah system. But usually we see the word Blial used to not, not to describe thoughts or things, but people themselves. Bnei Blial, which in the context of the Hebrew Bible means people who have the quality of Blial, not sons or children of Blial, as it was perhaps later understood in the Second Temple period. So what does it mean to be a Blial type person? Well, the men who pound on the door in the story of the concubine of Gibeah, Pilegish Bagiva, 
the men who pounded the, on the door and then they later rape the concubine apparently to death. Those are described as B'nai B'liyao. The citizens of an idol worshiping city who must be completely eliminated in a passage in Deuteronomy, Yernidachat, those are B'nai B'liyao. The men who bear false witness against Navot so that he's stoned to death and the king can take away his vineyard, they're B'nai B'liyao. So in general, B'nai B'liyao are really amoral people. They're pretty horrible. Now, it's not that, that surprising that in the Second Temple period, when there's already a tendency to see demonic characters behind the evil lurking in humanity, some Jews start to use the term B'nai B'liyao to mean people who belong to B'liyao, who himself becomes a demonic character that commands both demons and human beings. So B'liyao himself becomes this demon who commands demons and human beings, and of course those human beings are doing evil B'liyao-type things. Now we see this specifically in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it seems that the Dead Sea community considered themselves to belong to the lot of God, the Goral of God, while others who hadn't joined the community belonged to the lot of Blial, the Goral Blial. This is the identification that is presented in the community rule, in the Selchayachat. Now, we're going to see later on that other texts reflect a much less harsh opinion of outsiders. But right now, we're going to concentrate on the community rule itself. Now, in the community rule, the author or editor of the rule tells the reader that there's an annual ceremony for new and, and current members. In certain ways, the community ceremony echoes the description of the biblical covenantal ceremony held on Har Grizim, Mount Grizim, and Mount Eval, found in Dvarim Chavzayin in Deuteronomy 27, where the Levites recite curses against those who sin, and the listening nation needs to answer Amen. And then we have the blessings in chapter 28. Still, the Qumran community ceremony is a little different. So let's, let's read it together. I'm reading in the community rule, uh, one QS. One is the cave number, Q for Qumran, S for Serech, which is the word for rule book in the Qumran community, um, Serech. Then the priest shall bless all the men of God's lot, and Shegoral El, who walk perfectly in all his ways, and say, May he bless you with all good and keep you from all evil. May he enlighten your heart with insight for living. May he favor you with eternal knowledge. May he lift up his merciful countenance toward you for eternal peace. That's it for the blessing. Then the Levites shall curse all the men of Blial's lot, Anshei Goral Blial. Now, note we had God's lot, Goral Hael, and now we have Blial's lot, Goral Blial. They shall respond and say, Cursed be you in all the acts of your guilty wickedness. May God give you up to terror through all the avengers of vengeance. May he visit upon you destruction through all those who take revenge. Cursed be you without compassion in accordance with the darkness of your works. Damned be you in everlasting murky fire. May God not favor you when you cry out. May he not forgive you in order to cover over your iniquity. May he lift up his angry countenance to wreak vengeance upon you. May there be no peace for you according to all who hold fast to the fathers. Now, something that doesn't come through in the English here is that this is actually a reversal of the priestly blessings, blessing found in 
Bamid uh, Barvav in Numbers 6, 23 to 27, using many of the same words. In the biblical priestly blessing, it says, may God shine his face upon you and give favor to you, Vehuneka. And here it says, may you be damned in murky fire versus the light of God shining on you, and may you not find favor, lo Yehuneka. In the biblical belt blessing, it says, may God lift his countenance to you and give you peace. And in this curse, it says, may he lift the countenance of his anger to wreak vengeance against you, and you will not have peace. In other words, the Qumran community wants to express how the B'nai B'lial, the followers or children of B'lial, receive the exact opposite of the blessing of Israel by the Kohanim in Numbers. And then the ceremony concludes with, and all those who cross over into the covenant shall say after those who bless and those who curse, Amen, Amen. So what do we have here? As we've asked in previous episodes, what is the purpose of having this demonic figure here? What problem does Blial solve? Well, let's look at what we have. We have a lot of God, who are the community members, and a lot of Blial, who are everyone else. We should note something important here, and I'll reread this so it's clear. Then the Levites shall curse all the men of Blial's lot, and Goral Blial. Only people are being cursed here. This particular text does not curse Blial himself or his demons. And you can trust me on this one. In other texts, it's pretty clear Blial has his own demons. The text we have here actually seems to be based on one where Blial himself is cursed. And why do I say that? It's because the curses are all in the singular. So, for example, right in the beginning, right after it says that it's the people of the Anshegora Blial, the people of the Lord of Blial who are being cursed, the curse says, Arur ata resha Cursed are you, singular, in all the actions of your singular guilty wickedness. Ata oshmatcha, not the plural atem oshmatchem, as you would expect if you're actually cursing the people of Blial's law. In other words, it looks like someone took a curse that was originally meant for Blial himself and shifted it to include the members of Blial's lot. So we actually have a parallel curse text for Kuprachot, which is addressed to Blial and his demons. In for Kuprachot, the curse ceremony starts with Blial himself and his demons, and I'm reading now from for Kuprachot. And then they will denounce Blial and all his guilty lot. And they will respond and say, Cursed be Blial in his hostile plan, the cursing Blial himself. And denounced is he in his guilty authority, and cursed are all the spirits of his lot in their wicked plan. And they are denounced in the plans of their unclean impurity, for they are the lot of darkness, and their designation is to eternal destruction. Amen, amen. And only afterwards are the humans cursed, and cursed is the wicked something of his dominions, and denounced are all the children of Blial in all the periods of their presence until their consummation. So that is presumably those are the human beings who follow Blial. But here in the community rule, it's important to note that the blessings and the curses are addressed only to people. Why? So let's remember what's actually going on here. This is the introduction to a rule book, and it's talking about a ceremony for members to commit to the rules of the community. So the focus here is on people, specifically members and their agreement to abide by the rules of the group. Now, the Qumran community considered these rules to be God's rules, not just the group's rules. But the new member has agreed to abide by them. And this ceremony is meant to delineate the difference between the member 
and his intention to keep the correct rules and those who have, have quote unquote refused to join the community, that is all non-members. Now, what does it do when you call people outside your group the children of Blial? It demonizes them, literally. Right? It also explains why they don't recognize that your rules are the correct rules. After all, it should be perfectly clear that our rules are the divinely given rules, right? I mean, if they're right, shouldn't they be obvious to everyone? So why isn't everyone joining us? And the answer that the community rule gives the members of the community is pretty stark. It's that those people who are not joining are actually evil. They're actually followers of the arch demon Blial. And more than that, they belong to the lot of Blial. So what does it mean to belong to the lot of Blial? Let's talk about, a little bit about the Qumran community and their somewhat unusual beliefs. The Qumran community had a fairly deterministic outlook, but with some important limitations. By, by deterministic, I mean that the Qumran community believed that God had cast lots, as it were, at the beginning of time, determining who would be righteous and who would be wicked. But this determinism was not really absolute in the actual life of the sect. So in several cases, texts of the community specifically state that a person has a choice. They have the choice to join or not. They have a choice to follow the commandments of God or to choose their own will. And we'll see that more in depth when we discuss the evil inclination later in this series. When, we, when do we usually see free choice statements like this in community texts? When they say, you have the choice to do good or bad. We usually see them in introductions to rule books like this one, like the community rule. In introductions to the rule books and in the ceremonies that they describe, the member has to take responsibility for keeping the rules involved in being a member. But I hear you ask, we just read an introduction to a rule book and it talked about a lot of God and a lot of Blial. How much more deterministic can you get than that? But it's not quite that simple because in the continuation of this passage, the priests and Levites curse the hypocritical member. That's someone who swears to follow the rules while all along intending to break them. So that's like the Israelite who's described in Deuteronomy 29:18, who agrees to God's covenant with Israel while intending in his heart, in his mind to break it. And this is where it becomes interesting. When the community rule in the introduction describes this person who is a hypocrite, right? He joined the community, but he's intending, he's intending essentially to break the rules of the community. It says that the hypocrite has placed himself or God has placed him. The antecedent isn't completely clear. So either the hypocrite has placed himself or caused God to place him in the lot of Blial. In other words, through the hypocrite's actions, he has changed his lot. He was a member of God's lot because he was a member, but because he's a hypocrite, he intends to break the rules, his lot has shifted to the lot of Blial. So if he changed his lot through his actions and intentions, what happened to determinism? If it's a lot that God cast, as it were, isn't it supposed to be set from the beginning? So not this lot. <laughs> That's the answer. This lot is not like that. This lot, the lot as it's used in the ceremony in the community rule, seems to be based on the lots that are placed on the heads of the two goats in the ceremony of Yom Kippur that we find in Vayikra in Leviticus 16, 7-10. So that's where Aharon places lots, gorelot, on the heads of the two goats 
who will be sacrificed. One is for Azazel and one is for God. So let me read the biblical passage in Leviticus. He shall take the two he goats and let them stand before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meaning. And Aaron shall place lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. And then it says Aaron shall bring forward the goat designated by Lot for the Lord, which he is to offer as a sin offering, while the goat designated by Lot for Azazel, Azazel, shall be left standing alive before the Lord to make expiation with it and to send it off to the wilderness for Azazel. Okay, now, what or who is Azazel in this passage? Let's talk about this for a second on several levels. First, the plain meaning of the text According to the plain meaning of the text, we have no idea. Azazel could be a name for anything. However, it would not be surprising for someone who believes in demons, let's say a Jew in the Second Temple period, to read this verse as referring to a demon. There's a goat for God, who was sacrificed, and a goat for Azazel that's taken into the wilderness. Now, such a reading would be supported by by Leviticus 17.7, which is about 33 verses after this verse, which concludes an injunction that all sacrifices need to be in the Olam Moed, in the tabernacle. So at the conclusion of that passage, it says, you're not allowed to sacrifice to the Si'irim, which is apparently some kind of goat demon. Now, by the way, in saying that the Si'irim in 17.7 are goat demons, I'm following not just modern commentaries, but also traditional Jewish commentaries, Rashi, Ibn Ezra, etc. Ibn Ezra explains that these are demons, and crazy people see them as goats. So they're called Si'irim. So apparently sacrificing in the wilderness outside of the Ohel Moed, outside the tent of the presence, goes along with sacrificing to goat demons somehow. Now in Jewish tradition, in the main Talmudic tradition regarding what Azazel denotes, what is Azazel, the, um, the Talmudic tradition that's later quoted by Rashi, and which is considered to be the main interpretation, Azazel designates a place in the wilderness specifically a cliff from which the goat is thrown. So in this case, we read Azazel as meaning to Azazel, not for Azazel. This goat is designated to go to Azazel and be thrown from there. However, there is another interpretation in the Talmud. According to the school of Rabbi Ishmael, it says, Tanabibet Debe Rabbi Ishmael, according to which this sacrifice is meant to atone for the actions of Uzzah and Azael. And my regular listeners may remember this passage in the Talmud from my talk on the watchers in later Jewish tradition. Because the idea that the goat for Azazel atones for the actions of Uzzah and Azael is probably a reflection of the watcher's myth, i.e. the goat for Azazel is meant to atone for the actions of the angels Uzzah and Azael who mated with human women according to to one common reading of Genesis 6. Once we get to the medieval period, and I'm back on Azazel now, once we get to the medieval period, we see the Azazel demon connection more strongly within Jewish tradition. So the late Midrash Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which I have already noted is actually influenced by traditions we find in the Pseudopigrapha, says that the goat for Azazel is meant as a bribe of sorts to Samael, who's kind of the Satan stand-in. So uh, Azazel is a bribe for Samael, so Samael shouldn't accuse the nation of Israel on Yom Kippur. That's kind of 
out there. And we find the idea that the Azazel goat is being sent to demons in some way among medieval commentaries in a hint by Ibn Ezra, which later is later stated explicitly by Ramban Nachmanes. Ibn Ezra says, it's a secret. I'll give you a hint. When you're 33, you'll know. And the Seirim demons verse is 33 verses after the Azazel verse. Ramban explicitly says this was meant for the demons. Uh, the the Azazel um, goat was meant for the demons that take over uninhabited places. And Ramban actually says, you know, Ibn Ezra kept it a secret. I'm just going to tell you. He says, ah, how can you sacrifice to demons? You're not allowed to sacrifice to demons. Ramban says, you are not sacrificing to demons. It explicitly says that both goats are placed before God. Um, so what you're doing is sending the goat on God's behalf. Now to come back to our second temple audience. Okay. Coming back from the medieval period to the second temple period. So it's not surprising that many in the second temple period would at least connect the idea of the goat for Azazel as some kind of demonic designation and specifically the lot of Azazel, the Gorala Azazel, seems to have resonated with the Qumran community as an idea. So, And certainly there's a very clear parallel between Azazel of this passage of Leviticus and Blial in our passage in the community rule. We can also take the more flexible use of Lot, of Goral, in this passage of the community rule as taken from what we see in the Yom Kippur ritual. And I would like to say in an aside here that we find the word goral throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls in two meanings. One is the more metaphysical meaning of figurative lots that God cast at the beginning of creation in order to determine the future disposition and fates of his creations. So there's this idea that God kind of figuratively, I don't think that they thought that God literally cast lots, but that in, in a physical sense, but that God essentially cast lots and determined what the future of his creatures would be. And another way that Gora Lot is used in the Dead Sea Scrolls is the actual literal meaning of lots that the community's leaders cast to determine the nature and also sometimes the fates of community members. They determine what to do with certain community members, what certain community members, what their disposition is. They actually used to cast lots, apparently, sometimes to determine them. So both those uses of the word goral reflect the community's usually, usually deterministic outlook. In the Yom Kippur ritual that we have in the Bible, Aharon places a lot on each of the two goats, and that determines their fate, as it were. So in a way, Aharon can himself determine what lot each goat belongs to. Similarly, in the passage of the community rule, despite the community's generally deterministic beliefs, and despite the fact that they're still maintaining that there are two separate and distinct groups, there's the lot of Blian and the lot of God, there's still a consequence of someone's actions. Someone can behave or even intend to behave in a way that places them within the lot of Blial. And that's what happens when someone joins the community while intending not to keep the rules. They actually are able to shift their lot from the lot of God to the lot of Blial. And in that way, they're a little bit, it's more within the hands of a person, just like Aharon can place a lot on one or the other. 
as opposed to just kind of casting random lots. And why is it important to emphasize this? Well, some of you may have heard me express before how important it is to recognize the complexity of religious worldviews. And I think of worldviews in general, actually, both in the ancient world and today. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about the complexity of worldviews, including today's worldviews, when I get to the idea of the evil inclination. Now here, and you're going to hear me say this more than once, despite the fact that the community may have generally deterministic beliefs, there is a distinctly non-deterministic and human-facing slant to the way the ceremony is described. First of all, the curse that we have in the ceremony of the community rule is leveled at human beings who are in Blial's camp, not at Blial himself. Even though, as I said earlier, it's almost certainly based on a version which did curse Blial himself. In other words, someone actually took a curse meant for Blial and they changed it to only refer to people who are in Blial's lot. Now, furthermore, it's possible, according to what it says in the community rule, to cause oneself to be placed in Blial's camp. It's not completely determined from the beginning of time, regardless of one's present actions. A member can influence the outcome. They can influence which lot they'll be placed in through their actions or intentions. Why is this? Why do we see a more human and free will oriented slant here than what we would expect given the group's beliefs? It's because this is a rule book. And what is described here is a ceremony for new and existing members agreeing to be part of the community and to abide by its rules. Now, when you're introducing a rule book, it's natural, and I've actually found this in both the introduction to the community rule and the introduction to the Damascus documents, which is the other rule book we'll be discussing in this series. It's natural when introducing a rule book to emphasize human agency, that is human free will and the ability for people to affect where they are in terms of sinfulness and righteousness. After all, you don't want people who have joined the community to blame their neglect of community rules on Blial. You don't want them to say, Blial made me do it. And you also don't want them to think that since they belong to the law of God, they can do whatever the heck they want without any effect. The point here is that they must keep the rules and intend to keep them. They can't blame someone else. And that's despite the fact that usually the community does tend to be deterministic in their outlook. Despite that, members have to keep the rules. And so this is presented in a slightly deterministic way, but still emphasizing that people, it's all about people. And it's all about what they are going to do. Now we're going to see that even more clearly when we talk about the Damascus document in a coming episode. But coming back to Blial, what about Blial? We came, I hear you say, to hear about a demon. And instead, you're telling us about deterministic beliefs and the importance of free will. Well, now that we've discussed how human-centered this passage actually is and how important free will can be when introducing rules, even for the Qumran community, let's ask, how is Blial being used in this passage? Why do we need Blial here at all? Blial is actually used in two ways in this passage. Because both in the lead into the ceremony, which I didn't read earlier, but I'm going to tell you now, um, and in the conclusion, 
Blial is featured in a very specific way. Before the ceremony begins, the text tells us that all those who enter the rule of the Yachat, I'm reading now, all those who enter the rule of the Yachat, that is, of the Qumran community, shall be initiated into the covenant before God to act according to all that he commanded and not to backslide because of any fear, terror, or persecution during Blial's dominion, Memshelet Blial. And after the ceremony is recounted, we're told, so they shall do every year all the days of Blial's dominion. So I'm going to explain the meaning of Blial's dominion in just a second, but let's note here how Blial is being used. Blial defines people, people who are not in God's lot, are in Blial's lot, and he defines a time period. He defines the present period, which is the time of Blial's dominion. That's Blial's function here. We are literally demonizing anyone who does not belong in the community, right? Anyone who's not in the lot of God is in the lot of Blial. Now, this sounds harsh, and it is harsh, but it's the explanatory power of Blial that is the reason for the community members making this very harsh distinction. So I'm going to explain, I'm going to use the dominion of Blial to do it. What is the dominion of Blial? In the Damascus document, the dominion of Blial is explained as the current period when God has allowed Blial essentially free reign among Israel. Now, why in the world would anyone want to believe that there's a period like this? Why would anyone want to believe that God has done this? Why would you want to believe that there's an evil demon who's roaming free and that God allows it? Because it explains from the point of view of the Dead Sea community how it is that they are persecuted even if they're doing the right thing. If they're doing the correct thing, and they're the only ones who are actually doing God's commandments the way that God intended, which of course is their claim, then first of all, why doesn't everyone realize this and join them? And second, why does God allow them to be persecuted? They're the righteous ones. The answer to both questions here is the same. Bliah. In the community rule, the reason others don't join the community is that they're evil and they follow Blial. And we'll see in a coming episode that according to the Damascus document, non-members are not evil. They're just fooled by Blial. We still use Blial, but in a different way. And the reason that the present community, the current Dead Sea community, who are supposedly the good guys, quote unquote, the reason that they're persecuted is that this period is the designated dominion of Blial. When God allows Blial to work his will, so these righteous people are being tormented. But don't worry, the current period of evil will end in an apocalyptic battle where Blial and all his human and demonic forces are defeated, and we're going to read about that in the War Scroll. But why would God designate a period like this? The community's texts never really explain. The fact that this period is destined to end and it's destined to end with complete destruction of the wicked seems to be enough to justify God in the minds of the Dead Sea community. So it, it's, they're, they're not overly bothered by what we call the uh, problem of theodicy, the problem of justification of God beyond this. It's saying there will be an end to the evil and it will end with the total destruction of the wicked. So essentially... 
Blial is being used here to define the community as opposed to non-members. There's a lot of God, non-members are the lot of Blial. And also to explain how there can be non-members. Essentially, Blial here is explaining human evil from the perspective of the sect. And it's all he's also explaining non-members' success in persecuting this group. Those who are familiar with the way Satan is used later as kind of an explanatory force, we'll see a pretty clear connection here to the way Blial is already being used by the Dead Sea community in the Second Temple period. Now, in coming episodes, I'm going to discuss Blial in the Damascus document, where Blial is still used as kind of a way of dividing between the sect's members and non-members, but in a kinder way. And Blial in the War Scroll, where we have the big apocalyptic battle between the children of light and the children of darkness. So thanks for joining me. I look forward to your comments as always. And I also look forward to speaking with you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.